0: Uh, Please turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 2. We'll be looking at the story of the wise men and Herod over the next two weeks. As you turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 2, let me just extend an invitation to you. uh, This Friday night at 6 p.m. Christmas Eve, we'll be gathering together again as a church, as a community of faith, to celebrate Christmas Eve together, 6 p.m. here on Friday evening. It's a a wonderful service. I always enjoy it, kind of a a time for us together as a family and celebrate the the birth of Christ and prepare our hearts for uh, the coming day. Well, Matthew chapter 2, we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 18 uh, this week and next. And if you would, as is our custom, if you're able, uh, stand in honor of God as we read his word together. Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 18. Matthew writes this, Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation. Rachel, weeping for her children, she refused to be comforted because they are no more. You may be seated. Let's pray. Father, this morning we pray that you would turn our hearts toward you. We pray that you would cause our hearts to worship you and you alone, that we'd remove from our hearts the, the idols that have been built there, that we would turn from self-worship to worship of you. We cannot do this on our own, and so we pray for your grace in our lives, we pray this in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen. As you may know, Scripture doesn't command us to celebrate Christmas. In fact, Scripture doesn't command us to celebrate or commemorate in a special way any one moment in Christ's life, be it his, his birth or his baptism or the Sermon on the Mount or the Transfiguration. Scripture doesn't command us to observe or, or commemorate any one moment in Christ's life, including his birth. And throughout church history, Christmas has often been misused and abused by the church. A Christmas, instead of being a time to focus one's heart on the miracle of the Incarnation, the fact that God became flesh and dwelt among us, instead of Christmas being a time to concentrate on that and for us to be able to turn our hearts toward God, Christmas has often been used as a time to indulge in self-worship. The Puritans recognized this. They saw the excesses of Christmas celebrations as excuses to engage in debauchery and and drunkenness and and revelry. And so they, whenever they came and began to establish laws in our country, in some portions of the country, they prohibited the celebration of Christmas. In 1659 in Boston, a a resolution was passed, an ordinance was passed prohibiting the observance of Christmas. A, A person could be fined five shillings for each observation of Christmas that they participated in. And then one Christmas morning, all the Who's in Whoville gathered in the Boston Square, and Cindy Lou Who began to sing, and the Puritans realized they couldn't stop Christmas from coming at all. I may be a little bit confused in my history and Dr. Seuss, but the, the point is that the Puritans rightly recognized that Christmas had lost its, its focus on the person of Christ. It had become this excuse to engage in this, this revelry and, and drunkenness and debauchery, and, and so they said this isn't appropriate. Now, in our culture, I believe that, that we as Christians have a unique opportunity at Christmas, Christmas can be a time for us as believers to dwell and meditate upon the miracle of the Incarnation, the amazing truth that God himself became man, that he took human flesh and dwelt among us. And Christmas offers us the time to meditate on that truth, that miracle, and to ask ourselves this question, am I willing to worship the King of Kings? That's what Christmas offers those of us who are believers, the opportunity to meditate upon that truth, the miracle of the Incarnation, and to ask ourselves, are we willing to worship the King of Kings? And here's why that's such an important question to ask at the Christmas season. Because... Christmas is a day, perhaps more than any other day of the year, when our hearts can be tempted not to worship God, but to worship ourselves. What do I mean? In six days, the most anticipated day of the year is coming, right? Saturday, December 25th, the most anticipated day of the year. And each of you, each of us, have expectations for what that day is going to look like. Maybe you're, you're a child and you have some expectations about what sort of toys and presents are going to be under the Christmas tree. And as you think about Saturday and Christmas coming, you have some things that your heart desires. Or maybe you're a parent and you have this, this vision in your head of, of not just peace on earth, but, but peace in the home. And how your children are going to come down the stairs in their, in their uh, cute little pajamas and lovingly uh, be excited about the presents that they're giving and getting each other. And it's just going to be this, this beautiful picturesque moment. And, and that's what your heart desires for Christmas. Or, or maybe you're thinking about the food that's going to be eaten on Christmas. Whatever it is, you have expectations in your heart concerning what's going to take place in six days. And the temptation that we face on Christmas and really every day is to turn our focus on what God's plans are for our lives and to focus on worship of self. This is what I want this day to look like. This is what I want this holiday season to look like. This is what I want to happen. This is what I want, I want, I want, I desire. And so our temptation can be to worship self this week instead of worship Christ. It's always a temptation. It's always a struggle in the heart of the believer. But perhaps this week brings it to the forefront more than other weeks in our lives. So what I want to do this morning, and what I want to do next week, is put two groups of worshipers side by side. This morning, we're going to look at Herod and his cohorts and how they engage in self-worship. And next week, the day after Christmas, next Sunday, we're going to look at the wise men and their worship of the Christ. What we're going to see this morning as we look at Herod and the, the people who engage in self-worship, what we're going to see as we as we look at these 18 verses from the perspective of Herod and, and the people surrounding him is that the self-worshipper, the self-worshipper relentlessly and ruthlessly seeks his or her own glory at the expense of their own good. The self-worshipper relentlessly and ruthlessly seeks his or her own glory, even at the expense of what is good for them. They are so set upon seeking their own glory that all else falls to the wayside. A self-worshipper relentlessly seeks his or her own glory, even at the expense of their own good. Let's look at some of the traits of the self-worshipper in these 18 verses as we look at Herod and the people that are surrounding Herod. The first trait of the self-worshipper we see in the first three verses of Matthew chapter 2. The first trait of the self-worshipper is that he is troubled as God's plans threaten his own desires. The self-worshipper is troubled as God's plans threaten his own desires. Let's read the first three verses together of Matthew chapter 2. It says, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in, those, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and we have come to worship him. And when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled in all Jerusalem with him. You need to know some things about Herod. There are several Herods who are mentioned throughout Scripture. This Herod is only mentioned in connection with Jesus' birth. This Herod was the Herod we refer to as Herod the Great. His father had had him appointed a ruler of the Galilean region. Herod had had, uh, struck down some insurrection of the Jews there in the Galilean region. He had uh, achieved the notice of Rome. In 40 B.C., Rome calls him to Rome. He goes there, and they give him the title, King of the Jews. The Roman Senate calls him King of the Jews. Now, Herod is not a Jew himself. He is actually from a region that had been referred to as the the, uh, region of Edom. He was an Edomite. And yet, this title, King of the Jews, is bestowed upon him by the Roman government, and it's a title that defines the rest of his life. This title king of the Jews comes to define his entire purpose, and everything you see him do throughout the rest of, the, of his life is done with a desire to maintain that title, to maintain his power as king of the Jews. He returns from Rome back into Palestine. The Parthians are there and he Parthians are there and he causes them to be To be uh, run out of Palestine he consolidates his rule in about 37 BC he establishes himself as king of the Jews he marries a Jewish heiress in order to give himself more legitimacy to his title and he continues to do whatever it takes to maintain this title king of the Jews anything that's a threat to him real or perceived is dealt with ruthlessly For example, his wife's brother is a chief priest, his brother-in-law, and his brother-in-law represents a threat to Herod. And so Herod has his brother-in-law drowned. Now, in Herod's defense, he does throw him a nice funeral and and weeps very loudly, but he deals with the threat. When his mother-in-law becomes a threat, he has her murdered. His wife becomes a threat, he has her murdered. Two of his own sons are murdered as he perceives them as a threat to to his throne. In the weeks before his death, he's suffering terribly. He recognizes that he's not going to be mourned by the people in Jerusalem, and so he has all the prominent citizens of Jerusalem, the Jews, uh, gathered together, and he gives this order that they would be killed whenever he dies so that Jerusalem would mourn for him. Fortunately for them, that order isn't carried out after his death. Five days before Herod dies, he has a third son murdered, because he feels threatened by him how passionate is Herod about this title king of the Jews very and he will stop at nothing to maintain it that's Herod so Herod here in Matthew chapter 2 you can see why he's a little bit concerned when these wise men come from the east, and they come and they ask this question, where is he who has been born, and what title do they use? King of the Jews. Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? And Herod says, you're looking at the king of the Jews. And he becomes very concerned about this potential threat to his throne, to his title. And as he becomes concerned, what does the text tell us? It says all of Jerusalem is troubled with him. Why are they troubled? Well, first of all, because this guy is ruthless and they know what he's going to do in order to maintain this title. But at the same time, when it says all Jerusalem, they're talking about that, that power structure that existed in Jerusalem. And all these guys received their, their benefits from Herod. They're part of Herod's power structure. And so they're concerned also about the potential of losing their, their grip on the city, their grip on the region, and so Herod is troubled, and all of Jerusalem is troubled with him. There's a concern that the desire of their heart, Herod's concern, that the desire of his heart, is in danger as God's plans threaten his own desires, and so he has this troubled spirit. And I say, I would never... I would never do what Herod does in this story. I I don't desire power to that degree. I, I wouldn't murder my own children. Let me ask you this question. What is the difference between you and Herod when it comes to your desires and God's plans? Is it a difference in kind or is it a difference in magnitude? In other words, as you look in your own heart this morning, can you say, there is nothing in my own heart that would set my own desires against God's plans? Or is it a difference of magnitude? Say, you know what, I can see that danger in my own heart. And maybe I wouldn't take it to the degree that Herod did, but at the same time, as I look in my own heart, I see that I am troubled as my desires come into conflict with what God's plans are. We see it over and over again in Scripture individuals who have their own desires, and those own desires come to conflict with what God's plans are, and they refuse to be subservient to what his plans are. Think about Satan. Satan has these desires, and as he begins to see that his desires are in conflict with God's plan for God's glory, Satan, there comes a moment where Satan says, I refuse to submit myself to and my desires to God's overarching plan for his own glory. I'm not going to do it, and so he rebels. At the Tower of Babel, what does humanity do? Humanity sees that God's plans to exalt himself run into conflict with their own desires to exalt their own name, and so they come into conflict with God's plans, and they refuse to be subservient to his plans because of their desires. Over and over again, the pages of Scripture are littered with people and individuals who refuse to submit to God's plans because God's plans threaten their own desires. Over and over and over again, we see this danger that exists within the human heart. So here's an important question for you to ask yourself this morning as we think about this first characteristic of a self-worshipper. What is it in my life that I'm truly passionate about? What is it in my life that consumes much of my thinking? What is it that I've built my life around? What is it that, that I think about when I wake up in the morning and I think about when I go to sleep at night? What are the ultimate desires of my heart? And what would I do if God's plans came into conflict with those things that I desire. How tightly am I holding on to those things? As you think about those things that you desire, those may be the things in your life that God does away with in order to force you to focus your worship and attention more fully and more completely on him. We need not think in the grand overarching scheme of your life, too. Just think about this application for the next week. What are your desires for the next week? What do you want Christmas week to look like? What do you want New Year's week to look like? Maybe you have some time off and you have some desires of your heart that that you want to take place with this time off. There's some things you want to do with the kids or some things you want to do with your friends. What are you going to do if God's plans for your life are different than your desires? The self-worshipper becomes troubled the self worshiper becomes uneasy with God's overarching plan for his glory, and the self worshiper says, My desires are greater than God's plans. That's the first characteristic that we see in this text of the self worshiper. The second trait that we see of the self worshiper, we see in verses 4 through 6, the self worshiper knowingly opposes God's plans. He knowingly opposes God's plans. Look at verse 4. Herod's troubled. He assembles all of these, these guys, verse 4 says, the chief priests and scribes, the people. And he asks them, where is the Christ to be born? Where is the Messiah to be born? Now, recognize, he understands what the wise men are saying. He recognizes that they're talking about the Messiah, the promised king of the Jews. And he's troubled by it and he asks these Jewish leaders, these religious and political leaders, the chief priests who were probably part of the, the Sadducees and the, uh, the scribes of the people, he's probably talking to the Pharisees here, and recognize these groups he's asking are all part of this power structure he's assembled around himself. And he inquires of them where the Christ was to be born. They tell him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Very interesting here, isn't it? These scribes and and these chief priests have become part of the power structure they were people who had been ordained by God to to shepherd his people as well to teach them God's and his commandments and his instructions there's a very interesting principle here seeking power and seeking the worship of God can't coexist it can't exist in a country it can't exist in an empire It can't exist in a large church. It can't exist in a medium church. It can't exist in a small church. It can't exist within a family. Seeking power and seeking worship of God cannot coexist. These chief priests, these Sadducees and these Pharisees, the scribes, uh, tell, tell tell Herod where the Christ is to be born. They tell him that he's to be born in Bethlehem. Now, It's interesting because these scribes, these chief priests, understood a great deal about the coming Christ. They were well versed in the law. They knew what Deuteronomy 17 says about the king that God will set over his people. Deuteronomy 17 says this about Israel's kings. It says that there's going to be a king that sits on the throne of his kingdom, and he shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law approved by the priest. It shall be with him. He shall read in all the days of his life that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of this law and these statutes and doing them, that his heart may be not lifted up above his brothers, that he may not turn aside from the commandments either to the right hand or to the left, so that he may continue long in his kingdom, he and his children in Israel. There's this expectation that this coming king will rule according to God's commandments. In 2 Samuel 5, 2, the chief priests are quoting this, where it says, the Lord says, you shall be shepherd of my people Israel, and you shall be prince over Israel. There's this idea that there's this coming king, the Christ. And he's going to come and he's going to be a king that rules according to God's law. And he's going to to not just rule with a with a hard iron fist, but with the the, the hand and the, the staff of a shepherd. What the chief priests and what the scribes are doing is insane. Instead of saying God is, is working together at this moment in time and, and now there's been this, this Messiah, the Christ, born in Bethlehem and we can come and, and he can reign over us and we can experience the joy and the peace and the prosperity that the Messiah will bring. Instead they say this Messiah that's coming is a threat to the power structure that we've established for ourselves and it's better to do away with the Christ than to worship the Christ They knowingly oppose God's plans. It's insane. It doesn't make any logical sense. It's insane because they're opposing God himself? That's probably not going to go very well. And it's insane because they're turning their backs on the peace and the joy and the life that God offers. What's the difference between them and us? Within our hearts, there is a temptation to worship self. There's a temptation to knowingly oppose God's plans for our lives. Think about this, young people. God has given you a mom, or a mom and a dad, or a dad. God has given you someone in your life, and your parents, who loves you. They have proven their love for you over many, many years, perhaps 13, 15 years, they have proven their love for you. They have provided you food. They have provided you shelter. They have provided you clothing. They haven't killed you. They have proven their love for you. They have proven that all in their life, ex- that the, the focus of their life is to, to, to provide for you and care for you. All they want, they're the only people in your life that only want what's best for you. That, that's one group of people in your life. And then perhaps recently, you've gotten some friends. And these friends like you, sure, but they've demonstrated time and time and again that whenever your interest and their interests come into conflict, they're not necessarily always going to do what's best for you. And you've got these two groups of people who are giving you advice. God says, honor your father and mother. And you are sometimes choosing to follow the counsel of some people who, maybe even well-meaning, aren't as smart as your mom and dad. That's insane. It's knowingly opposing what God says is best for your life, and yet we do it. Or mom and dad, we know what God's word says concerning how we're to operate in, in a marriage relationship. We know what will bring us peace and joy, and we knowingly oppose it. When it comes to, in our culture, this we live in a culture full of sexual immorality. And we know what God's word says concerning purity and the pursuit of purity. We know, as we see around us, the, the lack of joy that pursuing sexual immorality brings, and, and yet still, insanely we choose to operate differently than what God says to do. It's insane. It doesn't make any logical sense. It's a self-worshipper. Self-worship is insanity. Think about this for Christmas, this next week. The miracle of the incarnation is that God himself humbled himself and, and became flesh became a man it was incredibly humbling it's it's humbling to a degree that we can't even fathom this next week what is god's plan for your life it's the same that god's plan always is that you would worship him and one of the ways you worship him is by serving others how can you as kids this next week serve your siblings how can you, as, as a husband, serve your family? How this next week has God planned for you to be a servant in your family, a servant among your friends, a servant at Christmas time? The self-worshipper knowingly opposes God's plan and exalts self. The worshipper of Christ turns from self-worship and submits to God's plans. So the self-worshipper's troubled as God's plans threaten his own desires. And then he takes it a step further, and he knowingly opposes God's plans. And then the third thing we see in the text is that the self-worshipper hypocritically pretends to worship God. The self-worshipper hypocritically pretends to worship God. Look again what happens with Herod. Herod summons the wise men, he's found out what's going to take place, and he ascertains from them what time the star had appeared, and he sent them to Bethlehem, and he says this, Go and search diligently for the child. When you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. Now, Herod has no desire to truly engage in worship of the Christ. He has no desire to truly engage in worshiping the Messiah. His lips say something that the heart doesn't truly believe or feel. That's the essence of hypocrisy. Sometimes our culture wrongly defines hypocrisy this way. Our culture says, well, you say something sin, but you do the same thing, so you're a hypocrite. No, I'm a hypocrite for different reasons. Uh, sometimes I'm a hypocrite because I fail to acknowledge my, my sin in the, in the sin that I do do. A true worshiper recognizes that they are a, sin, a sinner, still calls it sin, but asks God for grace and, and forgiveness as they turn to him. Jeremiah describes this. I believe it's in Jeremiah 3. Jeremiah is contrasting Israel and Judah. And in Jeremiah 3.10, God is speaking through Jeremiah and says, for all, yet says, for, for all this, her treacherous sister Judah did not return to me with her whole heart, but in pretense. In other words, Judah pretended to turn to God. There was an outward show of repentance, but, God says, it wasn't true repentance. It was pretense. It was hypocrisy. Verse 11, And the Lord said to me, Faithless Israel has shown herself more righteous than treacherous Judah. Even though Israel had been more outwardly sinful, she had been more righteous because she had turned in true repentance. Herod's Desire, expressed desire to worship the Christ here is self-serving. It isn't a truly born of a desire to worship God. You and I, as we think about the Lord Jesus Christ, as we think about how we were brought into relationship with God, must have hearts that are ready to repent and truly worship him. Remember how we're brought into relationship with Christ, and perhaps you've never been brought into relationship with God before. We recognize that we're sinners. We recognize that we need to turn from that sin. We need to to acknowledge it as sin and and in our minds say, I don't want to participate in that anymore, and to recognize that Jesus Christ, fully God, fully man, was born of the Virgin Mary, lived a perfect life, died on the cross for our sins, in our place, rose from the dead, and that by placing our faith in him alone, we can receive forgiveness. The hypocritical worshiper fails to acknowledge their own sin, need to turn from sin, and desire to engage in full and complete worship of God. I received an email a few weeks ago, a very interesting email. It's from an organization that fights what it calls the Christmas Wars. And I'm all for us being able to celebrate Christmas in public arenas, and I think Christians should have the right to do that. and should, should protest when that right is taken away. But, but listen to what uh, this email said. It said, Over the past five years, our organization has stood for, firm in the war on Christmas. Companies who used to refuse to acknowledge Christmas now have Christmas shops inside their stores. Many of them now use Christmas in their advertising and in-store signage. Sadly, there are still some companies which refuse to use Christmas, and then it talks about how this organization wants us to, to boycott those companies that refuse to w- use the word Christmas. But, but here's the question I have for us, and, and again, I absolutely believe it, it's sad. It, it, it's sad that our culture no longer acknowledges the reason for Christmas. It's, it's sad that our, our culture doesn't worship Christ. But really, is it our goal as believers to force companies to pretend to worship Christ? <laughs> is that really what we're striving for? Do I really want to see more signs up saying Merry Christmas by people who have no desire to worship Christ, but they're afraid of losing my money? Or instead, is my desire as a believer to engage in gospel witness at Christmas time and to tell people why I find Christmas such an appealing time of year, to talk to them about the incarnation, God becoming flesh, And living a perfect life and dying in my place so that I can have a relationship with God and worship Him forever. My goal isn't to see Christmas trees in stores in life. My goal isn't to encourage people to hypocritically worship and acknowledge Christ. Herod worships Christ or claims to worship Christ for his own self interest. I don't want to promote that in our culture any more than it already exists or in my own heart. I want to worship Christ in spirit and in truth. And I want to strive to change my heart and others as we do so. The final trait of the self-worshipper I want us to think about this morning is is this. The self-worshipper is furious when his own will is thwarted. The self-worshipper is furious when his own will is thwarted. Herod, we'll look at this story more next week, but remember the, the wise men are warned by God not to return to Herod, and Herod realizes that they haven't returned to him. His, his plan has been foiled for a moment. He sees he's been tricked, it says in verse 16 of Matthew 2. he sent... And he killed all the male children in Bethlehem, that region that were two or under, according to the time that he ascertained by the wise men. Herod is furious. His will has been thwarted. That desire of his heart, this title, King of the Jews, that he's willing to do anything to protect and to maintain is thwarted threatened, and when his will is thwarted by the wise men, he reacts with rage, a terrible rage, in a scene that's too horrible for us to be able to fully comprehend. He orders his soldiers to go out and to murder all these male children, two or under, perhaps some 30 children in that region that were that gender and that age. See, that's not me is it a difference in kind or a difference in degree is there within your heart a fury as your own will is thwarted James in James 4 we've talked about this before James asks the question what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you when you have the Christmas fight over Christmas dinner, when you have the, the quarrel and anticipation of Christmas, what causes that? James says, "It's the passions that are at war within you. You desire, you don't get it, so you murder, you covet, cannot obtain, so you fight, and you quarrel, you do not have because you do not ask. He goes on, and he talks about how God desires the Spirit to jealously live within us. The self-worshipper has these desires within his or her heart. Those desires aren't met, and he or she becomes furious. It's the rage of Cain, as God doesn't accept worship on Cain's terms, but demands that he worship him on God's terms. And beloved, this rage, this fury, is useless, it's futile, it's insane. Herod, even as he engages in this furious display of his rage because his will has been thwarted, even as he does these terrible things, he's simply fulfilling God's prophetic word. And Herod, in his rage, cannot escape that every, every knee shall someday bow confess that christ is lord in fact the ironic thing is this herod's going to go into this rage he's going to do all these things he can to maintain this title king of the jews you know what's going to happen in a year herod's going to suffer this terrible disease he's going to to waste away from the inside In a year herod's going to be dead and then and then what shall he do This week is a very important week for us. It's a very important week for a church. And it's important not because of the family that's going to be coming. It's not important because of the gifts that we're going to be giving or receiving. This is an important week because it's a week in which we can turn our attention more fully to the person of Jesus Christ. The self-worshipper relentlessly relentlessly and ruthlessly seeks his own glory even at the expense of his own good next week we're going to see that the person who rightly fixes their heart upon jesus seeks god's glory and receives a far greater good and joy